This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Daniel Magariel, author of the novel Walk the Darkness Down. I also, sort of full disclosure, feel like the thing I'll regret most at the end of my life is that I wasn't more vulnerable. We'll be back with Daniel Magariel after these essential words. So this past June marked the 10th anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? At what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests. I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is, how did we get to 9,000 hours? Is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made, well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters. And that's the truth. So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. Please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned. At the end of the interview, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support, and thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment, and on to the 400-something episode. My guest today is fiction writer Daniel Magariel. His first novel, One of the Boys, was a New York Times book review editor's choice and an Amazon Best Book of 2017, and was translated into eight languages. Magariel has a BA from Columbia University and an MFA from Syracuse University and teaches at Columbia and lives in Cape May, New Jersey. His new novel is called Walk the Darkness Down and tells the story of Marlene and Les, a young couple who have recently lost their daughter and are drowning in grief. Marlene drives the highways and back roads near her home seeking an image of her daughter untainted by grief, 
During her drives, she befriends a local sex worker who she is determined to save. Les, a commercial fisherman, hides his grief during his long trips out to sea on a boat staffed with loners and unreliable friends and co-workers. Marlene and Les avoid each other in a myriad of ways, but as their struggle to survive becomes more and more urgent, they must confront one another and their grief in order to find a way through their pain. We began the interview with Daniel Magariel talking about the impetus for his novel. That's a great question. I, I know that I tried on several different books after my first one, and I feel like I was a little lost on what I wanted to do. And I knew a commercial fishing captain down here where I'm living in Cape May, New Jersey. I wasn't living down here then, but um, I was living in Brooklyn. And um, I struck a deal with him where I would go out on his boat. He would allow me on the boat for 12 days uh, where we steamed straight into the Atlantic. Um, and, you know, with a whole crew, there was one bunk available for me and I would work for free in exchange for just the experience. And it was a grueling 12 days but out there just hearing stories and, um, and experiencing this alien planet of like boundless water. There was a, a moment where I realized that any one of these fishermen could get a call on the satellite phone uh, about something happening at home. And it would take, gosh, 12 more days to get home because it only, boat only moves at like 10 miles an hour, 10 knots. And, I just imagined standing up on the bow and just watching sort of the curve of the planet waiting for land to rise. Um, and it was just that image kind of, yeah, opened up a novel. And they were, were they scallop fishing? Scallop fishing. Yeah. Um, which is deep sea dredge fishing. Um, it's brutal and dangerous work. And it's just, it's continuous. What what makes it especially maddening, aside from the fact that you're just like on this small boat, small boat in the sense that there are like nine grown burly men sharing, you know, two bedrooms, um, two bunks, um, is that uh, the work rest cycle is 20 hours. Uh, so it's 16, it's, sorry, it's 14 on and six off. Um, and so you might start a shift, your first shift might start at 8 a.m., but, you know, four or five days later, your shift begins at 2 a.m. Um, and so just you're totally dysregulated um, from your life on land. So what do you think it is that led you to this idea of loss? I mean, that was really what you were thinking about was like if something happened. I mean, maybe it isn't necessarily loss, but usually you think something bad happens. What do you think led you to that? Well, I'd say there there are two two things. Maybe now that I'm a father, that I'm writing about the thing I'm most afraid of, which is way of staring it down. Losing a child seems like one of the most horrific things that uh, that any human can endure. Um, and at the same time, I remember seeing Manchester by the Sea and being so disappointed in sort of the lack of artistic bravery of the film, where we know that marriages don't survive the loss of a child like that's a story we all recognize and so i was a little unclear why they made me endure two hours of that i was much more interested in writing a book where a couple finds their way back to each other through the challenges the murky sort of unknown and then forgiveness so from being on that boat and coming up with that idea what happened next like when you got home I So I got home and I wrote essentially one long chapter that ended up being chapters three and five, um, which is just uh, time at sea with sort of inventing this whole cast of characters. Um, some of it based on the people out there and some of it completely um, changed. You know, everyone on that boat is a character, but I sort of ascribed to them, um, I don't know, nicknames that sort of fleshed out their entire sort of backstories. Um, so there's John Wayne, who only speaks in John Wayne quotes. There's Hoover, who vacuums up all the drugs on land. There's Stray, uh, our main character alongside Marlene. His name is Les, but out at sea, they call him Stray because he's always a bit distant um, from everyone. So he's like the stray cat on board. 
Uh, and then once I got home uh, and wrote those chapters, I really just started to spend time with Marlene, um, who for me actually became the heart of the novel. And living down in this sort of, uh, we live adjacent to this town called Wildwood, New Jersey, which is this like 1950s doo-wop relic. Um, and, and I just started to envision it yeah, I drive through it in the wintertime and, you know, in summertime, and there are 100,000 people living there, but in the wintertime, there's like 1,500. And it just took on this kind of gorgeous coastal desolation. Um, and uh, and I drive past these old motels, you know, with like the neon signs with like sand and sea uh, and palm trees and, uh, and just started to imagine a world sort of uh, starkly populated by yeah by sex workers and um and homeless people which there certainly are down here but also i think just living in new york the world just came to life and um and marlene started to drive these streets also uh, and if less's way of grieving is going out to sea and brutalizing his body for 14 day stretches, Marlene's is just trolling the streets and uh, and picking up women and taking them home and caring for them. Um, and so like Marlene, I've always loved the idea of uh, Jesus, even as a Jew, I've loved the idea of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. I always thought that was such a striking image. And so the opening scene of Marlene washing uh, the feet of a sex worker at her home just it came very naturally to me and it was something I was sort of excited to explore that intimacy and that devotion. When you started writing and discovering Marlene I mean basically I think this story in a lot of ways is about the way that we find each other again and also the fear of that intimacy, like you were saying with Manchester by the sea, you were so disappointed because in some ways it's easier to break up than to stay together. And one of the lines that you have near the end, which for me encapsulated a lot of the book, is you say, the closer you come to another human being, the farther you venture into vast and mystifying waters. And that can be really scary to venture into that mystery so I really wanted to ask you more about, you know, intimacy and writing about these people that in a way, after experiencing the worst thing ever, the loss of their child, the next scariest thing I think is being vulnerable and honest with each other. I think that's true. And I also sort of full disclosure feel like the thing I'll regret most at the end of my life is that I wasn't more vulnerable, that I did not take those deep breaths when like there's a moment those moments in life where instead of leaning into the intimacy i want to escape from it even just in small conversations to let yourself be known just a little bit more what you really think and to sort of seek that acceptance that vulnerability and also to give it um what was especially powerful, I think, for me in, in discovering that sentence is that on a certain um, on a certain level, it speaks to how terrifying being known is, and especially being known after, I think, after growing distant, which Les and Marlene certainly have, and they're sort of rediscovering each other. And, and one of the reasons they do grow distant is it's not just the loss of a child. It's also, in many ways, Les's unwillingness to be known to his wife. And so for him, he would flee the comforts uh, and the uh, intimacy of his family um, for fishing. And he would go out there with his with the guys he's known since he was a young boy and, and become this other self, this stray. Um, and he loved being out at sea. He loved feeling small and irrelevant, discovering a world that most people on earth don't actually know one that feels uncharted one that act, that one that feels like the human touch hasn't really been there um it's very much a frontier um and i think that these fishermen really occupy that that mindset um of frontiersmen 
And so he sought escape out there. And so for him to come full circle and to recognize that to be close to his wife is like going out and discovering this expansive and mystifying world. For him, that's like the full circle where actually marriage can be its own kind of frontier. Um, not one to conquer, but one to just appreciate, to exist in, um, and to value. There's a lot of time spent in the novel exploring the ways that we avoid each other. You know, for Les and Marlene, they met at a bar, had this instant attraction, but he was always kind of aloof. And when she got pregnant before they were married and he was down in Florida and she was still in, I guess, New Jersey, although you never, I don't think you ever named it as New Jersey. I never name it, yeah. And he just avoids her and doesn't come home and doesn't come home. And finally, eventually he shows up, but he seems like reluctant to be in this relationship the entire time. And then he just falls in love with their daughter, Angie. And this really bonds them and they love being parents and they love this child. And then there's a tragedy and she dies and they grow apart again. So I would think that sort of modulating that closeness and, and that aloofness would be a lot to control in the novel. One of the ways that I sort of initially explored it is, is structural, where I wanted to keep them apart, right? I wanted them to fully occupy their own worlds away from each other uh, as the novel begins. So you have you know, a chapter with Marlene at home, a chapter with Les at sea, a chapter with Marlene at home, a chapter with Les at sea. And then every fifth chapter or so, you actually get them in a room together when, when Les is returned um, in between uh, scalloping trips. And, <clears throat> and even approaching the page as a writer during those chapters, um, I felt so much anxiety, <laughs> you know, like, Gosh, what are they going to talk about? I hope that readers also sort of approach those chapters with like, okay, let's see how this goes. You know, how are they going to sort of modulate, you know, being living so intimately in, a, in an apartment with each other and also feeling so estranged um, at the same time. One of the ways I did that is, is that I, I think it was the obligation at, at a certain point of less to be the one to fight for their marriage. Even as he's the one goofing off and screwing up, I, I feel like Marlene at a certain point is, she's just going through the motions and she's finding her connection elsewhere. And so I think back at home, it's really, it's Les who's making coffee in the mornings and, uh, and, and fixing uh, the broken door that Marlene continues to seem to break it every every time he's home um, as they get into arguments. And he's the one insisting that they go out to dinner with each other and just spend some quality time. I mean, less, I think his interior sort of space is is very much this, he occupies this almost like fisherman ideal of perpetual adolescence. And that just doesn't jive with a, you know, mature marriage and a relationship. And so the up down on his carousel is just it's mistake and then contrition. And so I think the more he's willing to do for Marlene and to try to spend time try repairing the broken glass under their feet, um, I think the more she's willing to see him in a more sort of complex form, if that makes sense. And, and to embrace and to, and to forgive him or at least to, to tolerate him to even do acts of kindness for him on occasion and even acts of kindness that are so small as to like make a joke at at dinner just to alleviate um, the tension you know which is actually a scene that happens a couple of times that's pretty I think extraordinary because it just it allows them to hit some sort of um some sort of softness, to so achieve some sort of softness with each other. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. It's interesting the ways I think in your novel, but I think it's 
so much about human nature that that we try to recreate family or recreate the ways that we can find some kind of intimacy in our lives. And maybe some of it is, you know, there's some deep psychology there. For instance, Marlene's uh, proclivity to go out and find these prostitutes and bring them home and care for them and feed them. And, you know, it became like an obsession with her. So I'm interested in, in your fascination and interest in exploring this idea to recreate family, if that makes sense, or how Mm -hmm. the ways that we find substitutes for our grief, like handing that off on something else. It's no great mystery that the, the turmoil that exists inside of every one of us, especially when we're going through difficult things, it gets expressed somewhere in your life, you know, externally. I'm actually very proud of Marlene in ways because she's she's found a way it's an obsession and is not healthy but she's found a way to actually take the tragedy of of the current state of her of her life you know a a marriage in disrepair a place that she doesn't want to be uh, a child who whose sort of ghost and memory uh exists everywhere around her and then to sort of channel that into these prostitutes to express that sort of nurturing self that that she wants to express, you know, she she needs to. It's it's like innate to her as a character, not to all women, but to her as a character. She wants to show the people in her direct and her family, you know, her husband and her daughter. She wants to, to show them love, like that is so, and, and to and to caretake. She wants to do that. That is something that comes very naturally to her. Um, And so when she loses a child and then, you know, the opportunity to do that for a husband as well, she expresses it elsewhere. And what she doesn't realize is how much she actually gets back from it, too, Um, especially in the form of Josie, the sex worker she becomes very close with um, and uh, becomes in some ways a surrogate uh, daughter and in some ways a surrogate mother, too. Because Josie's the ones who are forcing her to confront herself. I feel like both of these people, Les and Marlene, retreat to very uh, sort of disturbing and um, and strange forms of family. Less out at sea with uh, these mostly sort of toxic characters, and then Marlene um, in the villas, just wanting to. Just spend time, talk, and feed these women. It does speak to, I think, a, the basic human need for uh, for proximity to others, for closeness, and um, and to sort of recreate family when there isn't one. Yeah, I think too that there's ways in which maybe psychologists would say that that's <laughs> that's an unhealthy way to do it but there's you know gifts that you know people can't re- be replaced she wasn't necessarily replacing her dead daughter with her relationship with Josie this prostitute that she takes in and um forms a deeper bond with but there's also these unexpected gifts in these kind of relationships when Maybe it's bringing out something similar in you or holding a different kind of mirror for you than, than talk therapy can do. I'm skeptical of anyone telling me there's a right way to grieve something like this, you know? And, and, I, and I don't think that, that grief is, is a linear path. And so I, I'm not suggesting that talk therapy is, is not valuable. I certainly think that Josie and Marlene and even less spend a time. I mean, the climax of the story is a conversation between a husband and a wife saying the things they've never been able to say to each other. So, but I feel like these divergent paths towards healing that both of them sort of undergo um, is very much sort of the journey that most people take towards feeling okay again after something tragic has happened. 
the role playing that happens between Josie and Marlene and that level of obsession, I think is something that people work through, you know, like I, I, who doesn't get their heart broken and go into like profound levels of just like obsession, you know, listening to the same songs over and again that they once listened to with that person, just intentionally forcing themselves to sort of sob through uh, the loss of a, of a partner. I feel like these sort of the role playing, these these actions, these external sort of gestures towards um, towards healing um, are are necessary. These sort of intense bouts of of, of imagination um, are important to get to a place where I think the the pain dulls and the memories sort of stop flickering so intensely. And I think, and that's very much Marlene's journey herself. I mean, the, her trips to the, to the villas, um, which is the, the motel where uh, the sex workers live, it begins by her just driving the streets and trying to conjure up memories of her daughter. Um, and the place that she most avoids but knows she needs to return to is the place where Angie, her daughter, passed. And her great fear is actually losing the vividness of that memory, of that place, and what happens when the memories of that sort of ground zero begin to fade. And in that way, I think she really understands herself extremely well, ultimately. She doesn't know this consciously yet. She will. But intuitively, she understands that the only way to heal is to face down the, the darkest stuff, which is where the title comes from to walk the darkness down. It's uh, a moment where, where Josie uh, recounts something um, to both Les and Marlene, uh, something that her, her grandmother used to tell her that, that our pain is our darkness and we need to abide with our darkness as if it were a child that wakes up in the middle of the night and needs to be walked back down to bed. And so you have to walk your darkness down. And I think that's something that Marlene is actually doing more than less um, for a lot of the novel intuitively. Was that something that you heard somewhere else and thought, I want to use this in a book someday? So titles are the hardest part for me. I have had so many, for both of my books, I've just had titles that just never work. And this title came at the very last moment and it was not in the book. That, that, that passage was not in the book. And I was struggling to find a title for this one. And this was after it was sold. It was almost being done edited. We were getting ready to put the galleys together and I still didn't have the title. And I returned to some songs that I had been listening to when I first was generating ideas for the book. And there was one album I listened to specifically when I was out at sea, it put me to sleep every night because the engines were roaring on this trawler and, uh, and the waves are crashing. So you're even in you're in your bunk, you know, your, your stomach is just like rising in free fall. And I would put on Towns Van Sant's self-titled album, his first album. And there was a song called Lungs, where he sings, uh, fingers walk the darkness down, mine is on the midnight. And I just always loved the, just the way all that sounded. I didn't even know what it really meant. And then I just, I took a moment, I just sort of walked the darkness down and lived with it. And, and then just started, and Josie just started speaking. And I just I just wrote the monologue and I immediately knew where it needed to go. And I restructured that scene. And then I was like, that's the title. And it's kind of amazing. It came that late and it's such a critical part of the book. But I found that way with my first book, too, with one of the boys. You know, it was a mantra that was kind of explored by the father um, and, and, and that in, in a way to persuade his sons to follow him um, and, to, and to, to do what he asked to be a part of the sort of the, the group of the boys um, is the way he manipulated them. And I didn't really realize that was like the major motif of the novel until the book was basically done. And I, and I was like, that's the title. And then you just sort of back build just, and it just, it's just, it's funny because it's just the, it's the slightest tweaks um, that really just allow the titles to rise. Um, and that's exactly what happened with this one too. It's almost like I'm so focused on the story itself that I don't really realize what the themes are. And then at the end, you sort of take uh, this long view of it and you recognize that, yes, that's what I was writing about. That's what I was working through. That's what I was interested in at that moment. Um, I remember sitting in George Saunders' class at Syracuse once and 
And he said a very similar thing. He said that he'll go back to his old books and, you know, and they're mostly collections of short stories and he'll flip through them and he'll be like, oh, for these eight stories for that period of my life, this is this one thing I happen to be interested in. And, and you don't recognize it until you have just a bit of distance from it. And I guess that's true for me with titles and themes. Isn't that interesting, though, how the mind works and that, like, you went out on this fishing boat and thought about loss and thought about how long it would take to get home if something bad happened. And then you end up with this theme about, like, how people work it out and walk the sadness out of their lives. I mean, not not to eradicate it, but at least to understand it. I think you have to have faith in all of that to be to 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 write stories maybe to make any form of art or maybe i think that you have to have faith that the process will will by existing in this state of perpetual meditation over the course of you know four or five years that everything is valuable that it all will that you have faith that it will all come back around which is why i feel like it felt like so natural for me to go back to that album um, and listen to it when I was struggling to find a title. Sometimes returning to the beginning, it helps to remind you that the subconscious mind is often much sharper than the conscious mind, especially when it comes, I think, to, to art. Do you think that's true, too, of your whole lived experience of life as it relates to art, that like all these things that whether they've been mistakes or whatever, or just innocuous memories from second grade that they somehow make their way into your art as well. There's no question. Yeah. I, I, I just, I have a full throated agreement. <laughs> that's, that's essentially my response to that. Everything in that way is important and meaningful. Having grown up in sort of difficult circumstances, which were documented a lot of them in my first book, drug addiction, child and spousal abuse. You know, I feel like I spent a long time just processing all of that and coming to terms with it and um, and figuring out how or if I could have a relationship with my father. And I felt really good about it. Like I feel good about, about some of those early experiences and where I am today and, and how grateful I am that even that I endured some of them because I, I'm happy, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that I get to, to do this work that I do. I, I love my family. I like where I live. You know, I, I love my students. I, I feel really fortunate in that sense. And then I'm with my three-year-old and he's pointing a squirt gun in my face. And I have no idea where he got the squirt gun in the first place, but he's pointing it and squirting me. He won't listen to me. And I find myself just snatching it out of his hand in a moment of just fury and all of that childhood stuff comes back and I'm just like, Oh, except for the roles are reversed. And I'm just like, that's what anger feels like. You know, um, that's what my father would have done. He probably would have smashed it too. But, and I just feel all of that return and I can't help, but remember that it cannot be suppressed. You know, it all must be worked through um, and, and nothing is forgotten. Even the kindnesses. That, that was an example of just like being afraid as a kid and then being feeling like a tyrant as a father. But even the kindnesses exchange, you know, as I'm looking at my son and thinking about the ways I want to raise him. You know, one of the things my father always did for me, which is extraordinary, is, is he would put my report card on the refrigerator. He was so proud of that, you know. And I, and I was so proud of that. And I'm just like, I want to do that. You know, just those, the, the kindnesses aren't forgotten either, I guess is what I'm saying. And so all these things that are living in the subconscious, these, these memories, these impressions, they're not gone. They're informing the present. They're guiding the present in many ways too. That's really interesting. It makes me think a little bit about when you haven't integrated all those things in your life. And I don't know if this is part of Les's identity that on the boat they all have nicknames and his nickname on the boat is Stray because he's a little bit aloof from everybody else and he's less unsure, at least with, you know, he's always Stray with his buddies from the boat. But he's he has these warring identities, which Marlene recognized early on in their relationship. And I was curious about that motif for him 
maybe you saw that also with the guys on the boat, but just wanted to ask you more about that element of the novel. I mean, it's striking to sort of see the ways that, I'm not going to say the group on the boat for sure, but I see it in myself too. This sort of, and I mentioned it earlier, this idealization of um, these sort of notions of perpetual adolescence, these stories that, um, that we sort of tell to sort of make ourselves into these characters of myth, you know, like this, the embellishments, even the small embellishments. Out on the boat, there is this wild sort of um, duality where you're on this small stage, it almost feels like, but the, but the backdrop is the sea, this gargantuan and inscrutable and mysterious thing. And it feels very conducive to storytelling and embellishment. And there's two different kinds of stories I feel like I noticed. There are the ones where uh, these guys, and I, like I said, I recognize this in myself too, these, these characters of myth, these larger than life, um, touching up their stories with bold colors. And then there's the other one that's this idealization of, you know, this perpetual adolescence, the, these antics that these boys, that, that these guys, you know, perform, these crazy things that, you know, grown men shouldn't be doing. In uh, the novel, there's the one where Hoover decides that it's a good idea to um, to mess with John Wayne's kid, you know, and uh, and I'm sure in his mind when he was doing that, he thought that this was going to be a great story. Um, and of course, it wasn't. And what you have, though, is you have this this sort of duality that exists, um, these contradictions. You have one version, one story where these characters are omnipotent you know, the heroes of myth and the other ones where they're infantilizing themselves, becoming essentially impotent. I mean, how do you move forward, right? With these, these contradictions in terms of the stories that you tell and it's, and it's fun and it's playful and it's ecstatic and everyone's having a great time and there aren't really stakes, you know, because they're just stories being told. Um, and then they go home and they're not with each other anymore. They're not out at sea for 12 weeks for 12 days uh, at a time and they're and they're thrust into sort of this domestic scene this sort of i don't know what what i'm sure many would describe these 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 fish would describe as sort of a, a more mundane existence um and and there's an expectation of of we keep coming back to this word of, of intimacy in a family right uh, a wife children extended family where you where you don't act that way right and i guess i was just very interested in and how do you how do you balance these two very extreme and and different realities marlene recognized it from the start for her she recognized them as warring of course but for him i don't think he ever viewed them necessarily as warring i think he always wanted the opposite. When he was at home, he wanted the freedom to be at sea. When he was at sea, even though he loved being at sea, he missed his daughter. And so for him, I think it was much more of a of never feeling sort of comfortable in the space that he was in because he always wanted the other. And that's why he's stray, um, because he's sort of estranged on the boat and he's sort of estranged at home. Uh, and really only capable of these short bursts, especially at home, of just making himself vulnerable and and to and 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 close and to show his love because he just didn't grow up experiencing that. Something that you also have going on in the novel, like in a bigger sense, is that's not necessarily tied to character, is you have these things going on with the earth. You have this these news stories that eventually Marlene and Josie bond over, but they have to do with like an imbalance in the natural world where you have 5,000 red ring blackbirds falling from the sky and the bullfrogs are, can't get to where they need to go. And the horseshoe crabs land on shore way too early to lay their eggs. And then the eggs die and it's winter and I wanted to ask you about this element. I, mean, it's, I feel like it's hard to live in the days that we live in now and write 
fiction and not explore the ways that the climate crisis um, affect our lives, even, you know, as a, even peripherally, even um, sort of as a counterpoint to some of the human dramas going on. Um, initially, um, when the red winged blackbirds fall from the sky, you know, this is a way for Marlene to see grief in the natural world. You know, it's a way for her to uh, project her own trauma on, uh, and, and I think find some sort of relief or connection um, or empathy. Um, and then, but I, I guess I was, I was interested, you know, and then I, similarly it happens with the horseshoe crabs coming up um, months early to spawn and their eggs all get swept away and frozen in the winter. And then the bullfrogs who, um, who came out of hibernation and migrated um, to a place north that they'd never been to before. I feel like these are all, I feel like we read the news and we see stories of humans losing loved ones due to um, global warming. And we see um, humans um, displaced and refugees forced to flee from one country to another, one continent to another. And we don't spend any time recognizing that it's happening in the natural world also. We don't look at it, I think, with the, with the level of sort of human value um, and human primacy. And as I was working through some of this stuff with Marlene, I was struck by, by, by stories I was reading um, about displacement in the natural world. Um, and species uh, living on the coast, you see species moving north all the time uh, in the water. You know, there's um, there's a number of whale strikes that are happening off the coast of New Jersey right now. And mostly it's because uh, the boats aren't used to whales being up here at this time, you know, at, at, or a couple months ago at that time of year. Um, and the world is changing and it's changing fairly rapidly and it's affecting species everywhere. Um, and the only times I feel like we really notice it is when we it jets up against sort of the, the human world. Um, and that's something I feel like that Marlene is, she's not paying attention to sort of the, the ecological crisis as much as she's paying attention to the ways it makes her feel and the way she imagined these, these animals feeling, which is just traumatized and grieving and homeless, which is how she feels as well. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer? There is a passage in Gogol's The Overcoat that I've just never been able to forget that I return to often and just sort of think about. It's a moment in the beginning where uh, the main character, Akaki Akakievich, is the, the narrator's telling us about his life as a titular counselor, um, who's basically like a, a scribe who copies down um, pages in an office. Um, and some of the abuse he gets from his coworkers because he's such a withdrawn and fastidious uh, man. The young clerks poked fun at him and cracked jokes to the extent that office wit allowed, told right in front of him various stories they made up about him, about his landlady, a 70-year-old crone saying that she beat him, asking when their wedding was to be, dumping torn up paper over his head and calling it snow. But not one word of response came from Akaki Akakievich, as if no one was there. It did not even affect the work he did. Amidst all this pestering, he made not a single error in his copy. Only when the joke was really unbearable, when they jostled his arm, interfering with what he was doing, and would he say, let me be, why do you offend me? And there was something strange in the words and in the voice in which they were uttered. Something sounded in it so conducive to pity that one recently appointed young man who, following examples of the others, had first allowed himself to make fun of him suddenly stopped as if transfixed 
and from then on, everything seemed changed before him and acquired a different look. Some unnatural power pushed him away from his comrades, whose acquaintance he had made thinking them decent, well-mannered men. And long afterwards, in moments of the greatest merriment, there would rise before him the figure of the little clerk with the balding brow, uttering his penetrating words, let me be, why do you offend me? And in these penetrating words rang other words, I am your brother. Do you want to say anything else um, about that? Yeah, yeah. This is what I would say is probably the greatest tangent in the history of literature. It's just, it's this divergence away from the story itself, which is about Akaki Akakievich. And, and we just have this sort of peripheral vision of what something he says in a moment of, of frustration uh, and confusion and how it affects another person for the rest of his life. Um, I think it speaks to a certain moral depth. It reminds, I think, me as a reader of the vividness of, uh, of other people's lives. Yeah, it's, it's just this world within a world that's his own story entirely, and it's beautiful. Can you read something you wrote that was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? I'd love to. This is the opening of chapter 15, and Les is basically sinking into a state of hypothermia at sea, lost at sea. At the age of 18, when he first started scalloping full-time, Les suffered from sleep paralysis. The condition is not uncommon among fishermen. It lasted only a few years, fading away as the work rest cycle on the trawler normalized. Back then, he went down easy, but dreams would float up fast. Mischievous and terrifying dreams from which he would attempt to will himself awake so urgently that his mind would come alert, though his body still slept. At first, confused by this disharmony, he hallucinated a presence sitting on his chest, pinning him down as his mind screamed and flailed and wept until he bolted upright in the berth. But as the condition advanced, the dreams evolved. The presence disappeared, and the time it took less to wake lengthened. He could be trapped inside himself for what seemed like hours. In that paralyzed state, he would feel himself falling down, down, down into a depthless sea. Body still, mind wild, he watched the light near the surface of the water wither as he dropped deeper into a blackness so vast that it used the world for a reservoir. This is what it feels like when Les loses consciousness over the hollows of the sea. Do you want to talk more about that? The first version of this chapter was this whole hallucination and like dream sequence that felt almost like Christmas carol where, you know, Les met, you know, three important people from his life, his parents, his friends, and his, and his, and his deceased daughter and this. Um, and now it just sort of comprised to a single paragraph because figuring out a way to describe, I mean, how do you jump into the mind of someone who's, 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 who's adrift in the blackness of the mid of, of the Atlantic ocean at night um, as he's losing um, heat, you know, from his body and slipping into hypothermia and delusion. And it took a long time for me to figure out an entry point. And, and again, this is something we've discussed, I think, a few times already. But that uh, image of, um, of sleep paralysis used to belong to a different character in the book. It was Josie. And she used to have a perspective, even in the novel that we eventually, that I eventually cut just because I needed, I wanted the, the book to be so focused on the husband and the wife, Les and Marlene. Um, and it was just in the scrap pile, basically, of the novel. And then I rediscovered it and realized that I was struggling to find a solution for how to describe the state that Les was in uh, of fear. And there it was, there was passage. That, that could help me photos like be reshaped. And I often find that that's the case in the process of writing that, um, that it helps just return to the things you've already done to find the solutions. Where do you write? Uh, these days I'm writing on a sailboat. It's docked and I actually get seasick on sailboats. So I don't even go out. Um, and I certainly don't know how to sail, but at the Marina, 
I open up the windows and I hear the, the lines tugging and the seagulls barking. And I just find the environment's really conducive to work. And there's no internet. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I don't. I, I never want to. I think the sweet spot for me is when I walk the dog or make dinner or clean the shower. My mind naturally wanders back to the work. It's a state of sustained meditation. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, my wife is an excellent reader. Um, she gets the first draft and sees, seems able to constantly just point out all the places where I'm unclear and maybe trying too hard. How have you dealt with rejection? I think I spend time with my family and my son in particular um, and just try to be really present and let that other world melt away. Uh, and then I get back to work. And what is your favorite word? Oh, man. I like... I like words that somehow through usage it becomes antonyms of themselves. So words like peruse, uh, which now means to skim, but, um, but used to actually mean to read very closely. Like biweekly is another. It's like I'm always, I'm always, am I getting paid twice a week or every two weeks? I never know. I mean, that is a joke. but Daniel, thank you so much. I'm so honored. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you for the wonderful questions and the time. If you like today's show with Daniel Magariel, author of the novel Walk the Darkness Down, check out my first interview with Bill Clegg on his novel Did You Ever Have a Family? We talked about the title, how he found the structure of his novel, and forgiveness. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 420 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips for my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Buzzy Jackson, David James Duncan, and Richard Deming. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.